The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Everybody awake? I don't know what time it is. I'm in the wrong time zone for me, but I'm uh, glad to be here. Appreciate your pastor inviting me uh, to come and be with the men this weekend and then this morning. And uh, I want to ask you to take your Bibles, if you've got one, or on your iPad or your iPhone, or if you've got it memorized. Uh, Acts chapter 12 and verse 5 is the key verse that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to talk about the power of a praying church. I heard a story about a little girl who wanted to write a, a letter to a missionary, and her Bible study teacher said, now honey, missionaries are very, very busy people, and takes a long time for them to get mail because they're in very difficult places and because they're busy and mail runs slow, you just need to know you may not get a response, but how sweet of you to write a note to them. And so the little girl wrote this note, Dear Reverend Smith, we are praying for you. We are not expecting an answer. You ever done that? You ever prayed and when you were praying said, I don't know why I'm praying about this because God's not going to do anything. Nothing's going to change. I've been praying about this for a long time and, and nothing's changed in it. I, I don't know how they'll change. I don't know why I'm praying. And you, you almost sometimes when you're praying feel like you're going to a bank to get money out of an account that's not yours. And yet God has given us access to the throne of grace, to take our needs and our problems and our burdens before him. Now, I want to give you the context of Acts chapter 12. A lot of things have been happening. Pentecost has come. Thousands have been saved. Persecution has begun. There have been some people that have been healed, but, but the pressure is increasing. The religious leaders are upset with this early church, the way uh, as they would often call them, but they're upset with this movement of people who are followers of Christ, who claim to be the Messiah. And so they're bringing pressure on the Romans, and they're bringing pressure on Herod. Well, Herod has had James arrested, and he's had him killed. That found great favor with the Jews that were in power during that day. The Romans are always worried about something starting that would cause turmoil in the city, and so they've got their eyes open. So James is dead. Peter is now arrested. So you've got the two top leaders in the church, one dead, one arrested during the week of Passover, but Herod's not going to kill him during Passover. That wouldn't be expedient. And so he's going to wait until the end of Passover, and then he's going to have Peter put to death. Now, Peter is surrounded by 16 guards 24 hours a day. He's not only in jail, he's in the second part of a jail. So there are two cells to get to him. And here's this leader of the church imprisoned. The church is wondering, if Peter dies, what happens to us? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to take us forward as a church and as, as the people of God? Who's going to help us with the issues that we deal with? And so the church does something different than what we would do. They pray. 
They, they don't march on City Hall. They don't write a petition. They don't write letters to the editor. They don't protest. They don't try to bribe Herod or the guards. And Herod was the kind of guy that would have been easy to bribe. They go to God in prayer. They cry out to God. And they ask God to meet an impossible situation and to do something unbelievable that could not be explained. That's what happens when a church prays. The unexplainable begins to happen. Now, all of us would say we believe in prayer in theory. But in practice, do we pray or do we often just worry on our knees for a few minutes and then get up and just try to figure it out? So I want you to look at the context of this verse. Chapter 12 and verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. So Peter's asleep. Now, I don't know about you, but if they were going to execute me in the morning, I probably wouldn't be sleeping. Unless I had an Ambien or something, you know. I probably wouldn't be sleeping. I would have been pacing, writing a letter, hoping somebody would come see me. I would be a little stressed out. My blood pressure would be up. But Peter's chilled. I mean, he's asleep. And I got to thinking, why is he sleeping knowing what's coming apart from divine intervention? John 21 tells us that when Peter was restored by the sea, that Jesus said to him, when you are old, they're going to take you away. And Peter said, man, I don't have an AARP card. Social Security is not telling me to sign up. I'm not on Medicare. I mean, this isn't it. I don't know when it is, but this isn't it. So he's asleep. He wakes up. He comes out of the prison unexplainably, and he goes to the prayer meeting. He knew where the church was gathered. He knew the church was praying. Somehow, some way, word had gotten to him that the church had gathered. Many of them had come together just like your church did on this past Tuesday night to come together for a prayer meeting. And so they gathered and prayed for Peter. Now, here's what I want you to kind of give context to today. Every one of us in this room knows someone that's in captivity. They're captive to fear, anxiety, depression, alcohol, drugs, pornography. There's a bad marriage. There's a bad relationship. There's stress between family members. There's a prodigal out somewhere. But they're in a prison of some kind, either of their own making, of their own choices, or unfortunate circumstances. Whatever it is, you and I know someone who's in captivity. So how do we pray for people who are in captivity so that we can see God set the captives free. Well, let's start at the end of the verse and work our way through it. Chapter 12 and verse 5 is the verse. They prayed to God. Beginning of the prayer is to God. All praying is to God. Prayer that is answered is to God. Now, 
Not all prayer is to God. You say, well, I thought all prayers were to God. Well, there are people praying to false gods all around the world right now, and their prayers aren't being answered. But let's talk about Christians. Jesus said when he taught his disciples how to pray, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, talking to the Father. So if I'm praying to try to tell God to change his will to my will so I can be happy and I can be comfortable, that's not praying to God. I'm just trying to arm twist God and I think somehow that he's a bellhop that will go get me whatever I want. Praying to God is also not praying to impress people with your prayer life. You ever been in a prayer group and, and this kind of thing happens? And somebody, everybody's praying, you know, usually we join hands because we can't pray without joining hands. And, and, and so we're praying and somebody says something and, and, and a couple of people go, hmm, hmm. And then somebody says, yes, yes, Lord, yes. Somebody says, amen. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, I'm going to remember that next time I'm praying because I'm going to get some yes and amens. So you, you start thinking about what are people responding to. It doesn't matter if people are responding or not. You're talking to God. And it's not whether they're responding. is are you getting in communication with God? And, and so the other aspect of it is, is prayer is getting into the presence of God. And the great thing about getting into the presence of God is you don't have to go through security. You don't have to have a passport. You don't have to have a driver's license. You, you don't have to jump through any hoops. You can just get into the presence of God by God's grace. In 2002, uh, I got an invitation. I got a phone call one day, and I got an invitation to go to the White House and to be in the Oval Office with President Bush. And there were eight of us that were invited. Very small group. It wasn't an East Room meeting. It wasn't the West Lawn or anywhere else. It, it was inside the Oval Office. I'd been to one, to a meeting in a couple other places in the EOB, but this was my first time to go in the Oval Office. Well, when you get invited to the Oval Office, it doesn't matter what's on your calendar, you suddenly clear it. You just clear it. And I've heard people say, I'll tell you what, if I ever go to the Oval Office, I'm going to tell that guy something. And it doesn't matter whether it's Democrat or Republican. Can I just tell you, when you walk into that room and you realize how much power is in that room, the first thing you want to say is, could you tell me where the restroom is, please? <laughs> So there were eight of us invited. There was a Greek Orthodox priest. There was a Catholic priest. There was a Jewish rabbi. There were several other. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it really wasn't. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so we went in. I shook hands. I was the last one in the line. I really got nervous when the congressman behind me, there were two congressmen. We were there for the signing of a bill. And the congressman behind me has been serving in Congress for 10 years. And he said, man, I'm really nervous. I've never been in here before. And I'm thinking, okay, there's a congressman that hadn't been in here. And the first thought that came to my mind, Lord Jesus, don't let me be stupid. And so we went in, I met him, we stood behind the desk, and they told us going in, now this will take about five minutes, he'll get you positioned behind the desk, he'll call the photographers in, take the picture, sign the bill, and then you're gone. We were in there 25 minutes. 25 minutes. Now not one time in that 25 minutes did I go, could we get going here? I mean, there's a burger joint about a block from here, and I was really hoping to get in before the crowd. I mean, I was glad to be there, and I was glad to stay as long as I could stay. 
Guess what? You've been invited to the office of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you have total access. There's nobody standing outside the front with his arms folded, looking at you like, I'll kill you if you do anything. And there's nobody telling you when you have to leave. You just have access to God. Now, how do we get access to God? How does a person get into the presence of God to pray? First of all, you get access through the blood of Jesus. We come into his presence through the blood of Jesus. I don't come into God's presence on my merit. I don't show him my resume and say, you know, you really ought to listen to me. I don't show him how many books I have in my office. I don't tell him where I've preached. I don't tell him my my stuff. I just go through the blood of Jesus. Why? Because that's the only way I can get in. It's by the grace of God that I get into the presence of Jesus. I have no merit on my own. I have no worth on my own. My worth is that God loved me so much that he died for me and gave his life for me so that I could have life in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin. So when I go into the presence of God, he's not saying, now before you talk to me about anything, let's go down this list of sorry stuff you've been doing. The blood of Jesus covers my sin, past, present, future. So I have access into the King of Kings through the blood of Jesus. Secondly, we come into God's presence through the Son by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 says, For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So that word access means introduction. So here's what it means. I'm ready to pray. Holy Spirit is inside of me. I've been forgiven of my sins by Jesus Christ. And the Spirit takes me into the presence of God. And he says, Father, this is one of your children. And he wants to talk to you. He makes introduction. And Jesus says, that is one of your children. Father, I died for him. He gave his life to you and asked me to forgive him of sins. And I did. And he has full access to you to talk to you as a loving heavenly father. He brings me into the presence of God. And so here's how it works. We, make, we need God the Father to pray to. We need God the Son to pray through. And we need God the Holy Spirit to pray in. So I pray to God through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's prayer. Now, fervently. He says they prayed fervently. That means unceasingly or stretch outedly. It's a medical term to stretch your muscles as far as they can go. Some of you can stretch your muscles further than me. I I just, you know, I have a friend that just rode 169 miles in the pre-Tour de France event up and down four mountains. I sent him a picture of my stationary bike and I said, I get on this every 169 days. (laughs) He was not impressed. By the way, the word fervently is the same word that is used of Jesus in Luke's gospel when it says Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed fervently. This is not haphazard praying. This is not bless me, bless mine, bless you, bless everybody else. Bless those for whom it is our duty to pray. This is getting serious in a relationship with God, not taking God's name in vain by treating it lightly but by understanding that I am talking to the King of kings and Lord of lords, but I'm also talking to my Father. 
And so they stretched out fervently. Paul said, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And when you read Paul's letters, you should go through sometimes and underline where he talks about fighting or contending or striving or struggling. Oftentimes, Paul is using those words in terms of prayer. Prayer is the hardest thing we do. The devil fights us more in prayer than anything else. Uh, it's easier for me to share my faith with somebody than it is to pray. It's easier for me to preach than it is to pray. It, easier, it is easier for me to do anything than it is to pray. Because the first I kneel down to pray, the devil reminds me of something I did 35 years ago that I'd totally forgotten about. You ever tried to pray at night and found out how quickly you can fall asleep? You lay your head down and say, you know, I'm just going to pray before I go to sleep. Dear Lord. And you're just gone. Or you kneel down to pray and the worst thought in the world comes to your mind. Or the devil comes to you as the accuser and says, well, you don't even have a right to talk to God. I know about you. You're sorry and you're no good. And you're a sinner. And you, the way you acted today, how dare you even go in the presence of God? But you have a lawyer in heaven. That's what First John says. An advocate. And the advocate always beats the accuser. And the advocate always says to the accuser, you're right, he's done all that, but it's all covered under my blood. So we strive in prayer. It is prayer fervently. There's no place where you're going to get attacked more than when you're trying to pray. Thirdly, it's by the church. United prayer, focused prayer, they're agreeing in prayer. They're agreeing with one another. They have a common thing that they're praying about. Peter is in prison. They're asking God for wisdom. They're probably praying, if you read between the lines, for his deliverance. Or they're praying for wisdom and know what to do if he is killed. They're probably worried what happens if they come after us next. Now, I want to give you three levels of a praying church. There's level one, level two, and level three. Level one church primarily prays in a crisis. There's nothing wrong with praying in a crisis. You should pray in a crisis. But the level one church prays over needs, most often physical or financial. But they don't think about the kingdom. They don't see the big picture of where they are and why they're there. The level two church has a prayer ministry. So if you say, well, what does Life Church have? It, well, Life Church has, has a kids' ministry, and we've got a youth ministry, and we've got an adult ministry, we've got a serving ministry, we've got a ministry to our city, and we have a prayer ministry. So somebody will just say, well, we have a prayer ministry. It's one of the ministries of the church. And every ministry in that church is praying at some level, at some point, about something, but prayer's not driving everything. We are at Sherwood somewhere between level two and level three. We have some ministries that are at level three. We have some that are at level two. We have a lot of people that are just at level one, but I'm just glad they're at least praying. Level three church is a praying church, and Christ is at the center of every activity. The heart of the church is the prayer ministry. We have a prayer tower uh, outside the front of our church. It has a prayer room in it. Uh, it has an upper room in it where uh, our finance team and other teams and small groups go up in that upper room to pray during the week. Uh, we have a 24-hour prayer ministry at the church. Here's how I define it. Prayer leads us to love God, grow together, 
serve others, and change the world. Because if I'm talking to God, God is talking to me about what's on his heart. And the first commandment is to love God with all your heart. So prayer leads me to love God. That shows up in my personal worship. It also shows up in my corporate worship. It leads me to grow together. I want to be in fellowship with other people. I want to be in a church family. It leads me to serve others. It's not about what is everybody going to do for me, but how can I serve others? And it leads me to look at people the way God looks at them, to love them and want them to have a personal relationship with Christ. And it was prayer for him. Not the contemporary Christian group for him that was around during the 90s. Uh, It was prayer for him, for Peter. Specific person, definite person, in a definite place and a definite need. They were praying for Simon Peter. They had gathered not to pray in general, but they had gathered to pray specifically. And the key to it was they were seeking the will of God. Now, in our church, we have a thing called the hymn possibles. That's an impossible with an H in front of it. Because God says, the word says, with God, nothing is impossible. Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, be moved. That verse is in the context of prayer and faith and forgiveness in Mark's gospel. So we have him possibles. And our people write down things on a card and they lay them on the altar at least once a year, sometimes all through the year. These are things that I've tried to figure out, I've tried to fix, I've tried to change, I've tried to argue a family member into thinking differently, I've tried to manipulate it, and nothing is working, and only God can change this situation or this person. An addiction, an attitude, depression, discouragement, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. But it's one of those things that it is so bad and so serious that if God doesn't step in, it's not going to change. And through the years, we have seen people put cards on the altar, and some immediately, some six months later, a year later, some over 10 years later, God has answered their prayers and done miraculous things because they stayed at it with persistent praying about their hymn possibles. Every one of us has a hymn possible. Uh, when I was 39 years old, uh, I found out I was adopted. Now, that's not what you want to find out when you're about to hit midlife. Makes you drink a lot more caffeine. Uh, it was a strange situation. The social worker that handled my adoption was in my mother-in-law's flower shop, and she asked, who did Terry marry? And she said, well, she married a boy from the next town, and so what was his name? And she said, his name was Michael Cat. She said, oh, I know who that is. That was the first adoption I handled as a social worker. My mother-in-law didn't know I was adopted. I didn't know I was adopted. My mother-in-law calls my wife and says, I've just had a lady say the strangest thing in the world to me. And so Terry said, can you get a little more information and talk to her? So she called her up. This lady was in her late 70s, and she called her up. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember it distinctively. Dr. Cameron was the birth, uh, the doctor, and my middle name is Cameron. And uh, Dr. Cameron handled it. It was a private adoption. And uh, 
knew the name of my parents, knew a lot of stuff. And so then my wife is faced with the task of how do I tell my husband that I know something he doesn't know about his life? And all growing up, my mom had said things to me like this. My mom was an incredibly insecure lady. And she had a lot of issues with insecurity. And she lived with fear. It, it grieves me that she lived all of her life with fear that I would find out. And so I called my youth pastor. And he said, oh, yeah. Now, I'm 39 years old. My youth pastor is still alive. And he's still alive today. And so he said, oh, yeah, everybody in the church knew you were adopted. I said, I'm a member of the only church in the world where people kept a secret from somebody that needed to know it. And so I called my cousin Nancy and I said, Nancy, did you? She said, your mom and dad never told you? I said, no. She said, well, all the family just assumed that they had told you. And I said, stop this. I mean, this is driving me crazy. And so now I know I'm adopted. My birth mom, has, I mean, my, nat my adopted mom has been saying things to me all these years and saying things to me after our children were born. You know, cancer runs in our family. You know, diabetes runs in our family. That wasn't true. She didn't know that. But she was doing it to build walls around my life to keep me from finding out things. And I found out. The only time I was able to have a conversation with her about it was when she was in ICU and was about to die. And I stood over her bed and I told her that I knew. And I told her it was okay. And I told her that I'd forgiven her. My dad and I were going to have a conversation. He was in the hospital. And I said, Dad, when I've got to go back and preach. When I get back, I need to talk to you about some things. And he died before I could get back. So I never got to have the conversation with my dad. So, 39 years of age. It's 24 years later. You do the math. I have my social security card. And I've been praying all this time. And my church has been praying with me. Because I've shared with them. Because, I mean, this created some stress and anxiety on my part. Now I know, do I tell my birth children? Now I'm dealing with the stress of when do I tell my kids that I know this? Because they're going to have a different opinion about their grandparents. So what do I say to them? So I've got all this stuff going on and I've got people in the church praying for me and lifting me up and, and talking to me and saying, man, I'm praying for you. Have you ever found out anything? Do you know anything? And, and we tried everything. We, we got the name of the lady that my birth mom lived with. And she refused to have any contact with us. She said, I swore to a secret in 1952, and I'm not going to break that vow that I took that year. And so I sent a letter, and I sent pictures. They got sent back unopened to that lady. She said, nobody will ever know. Well, shorten up the story. In January of this year, I see a Facebook post, and somebody says to me, you ought to call that guy. Well, I can't call the guy, so I private message him on Facebook and say, would your mom happen to know someone who had a baby on December 25th, 1952 in Mississippi? And immediately I get an answer back from her. I said, yes, she does. Would you like to talk to her? 
So this lady's now in her 80s. And I call her up. She says, this Michael? I can't hear real well. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I have waited most of my life to talk to you. She said, I told everybody. I didn't vow to a secret. And if my path ever crossed yours, I'd tell you everything I knew. She told me all about my birth mom. Told me her name. Told me the name of her husband. Told me that she had two other sons. I mean, she told me a lot of stuff. Told me that she died in 2013. And I said, well, does the lady she lived with, with her family, know that she said, oh, she's going to be mad, but I'm going to tell her I told you. So this is in January. Five weeks ago, the lady that had blocked me from learning anything about my birth mother called me on a Thursday night. I was at home by myself. My wife was teaching a Bible study. And she says, is this Michael? And I said, yes. She said, I'm in a nursing home in Texas, and I cannot die and not talk to you. So from January to now, I know the name. I know a lot about me. I've learned a lot about God, and I've learned a lot about my birth mom, and I've learned a lot about myself because I'm in a church that has prayed me through it. This is my birth mom. She had me when she was uh, 23 years old. She was a Delta Airlines stewardess. That was a pretty prestigious job in the 1950s. She never told my birth father that she was pregnant. She almost miscarried me twice. She stayed in bed for seven months. As I've gotten to know things about her, I know where she's buried. I know the house that she lived in. As I've gotten to know things about her, I'm amazed at the things that we have in common. She loves movies. She loves the theater. I have a daughter who's an actress and, and who has been involved in theater and movies. She was the female lead in Fireproof. And, and uh, she loved golf. She went to the Masters every year. I went to the Masters every year. I could have walked right by her and not even known it. But I know this. I wouldn't know this and I wouldn't have that if I hadn't been in a praying church. And so God took something that hung like a cloud over my head for 24 years and he gave me an answer. The best answer I got was I met her pastor. She lived two hours from me, by the way. And I met her pastor. And her pastor preached her funeral. He gave me the notes from her funeral. And I said, can you tell me that you know without any doubt that my birth mother had a relationship with Christ. And he said, oh, yes, she did. She was very faithful to the church. She loved the Lord. She was a great supporter. So one day, I'll have an interesting conversation. But I'll have it because I was a part of a praying church. Would you pray with me? Father, there are people in this room that may be in captivity, or they have a friend, or a loved one, or a work associate that's in captivity. And I pray for your grace for them right now. I pray that you would open prison doors and set captives free. God, do that which cannot be explained by manipulation. Do that which can only be explained by the hand of God reaching into time and space 
and intervening in our lives in such a way that we give you glory for the answers, for what you do and how you do it. And we give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.